listening to Camayo's Compliance Talk by our in-house compliance expert, Michelle Camayo. Join Michelle on the latest developments, questions, and conversations surrounding employee benefit issues organizations are navigating today. Good morning, everyone. Thanks for joining me today. Wow, it's been a really exciting month since we last discussed compliance as it relates to employee benefits and what's going on and what's new. The last time we did this was right before Christmas, and there's been a ton of activity between Christmas and now. So, lots to talk about today. I'm Michelle Camayo. I'm the compliance leader here at Bolton & Company. I work with employers on a daily basis who are wanting to be compliant. I have these practical discussions with employers. I do not give legal advice. And, and this really works in our favor sometimes because, because we can talk about what our other employers are doing and what I'm seeing out there across the nation. Keep in mind that the information comes in rapidly and it's been changing rapidly or what happens is further guidance is released. So what we thought we knew is not actually what we knew. <laughs> and that, having said that, it's very important to stay on top of anything new that comes out or any type of guidance or revised regulation. The objective of our discussion today is to have a conversation that helps you along the way. I know that what you're looking for as an HR leader, or professional, or a business owner, a CFO, whatever it may be, what you want is validation on what you've read, perhaps some additional clarity, a second set of eyes, if you will, and guidance where, where none may seem to exist. So the hope is that this conversation each month provides a little bit of that for you, some of that validation and guidance. Before we begin the presentation today, just a reminder that Camayo's Compliance Talk is a podcast. You can download it from Apple Podcasts at any time, and you can listen to all of the past episodes. I believe we have 14 now, and this one will make 15 when it is loaded onto Apple Podcasts. Today, we are going to discuss some important developments and a few reminders with regards to California state reporting. CAA 2021, which is what was passed at the end of December, uh, CAA stands for Consolidated Appropriations Act, the CARES Act deadlines as a reminder, and then my favorite segment, Toilet Paper Talk where we will have a review of things that have become incredibly relevant just like toilet paper. Hopefully you're giggling because that, that's my compliance nerd joke right there. <laughs> okay. The California state reporting requirements. I did release a compliance alert and a blog. If you're subscribed to the Bolton blog, you would have seen it. It is a uh, really born out of the California individual mandate. If you remember, the federal government had an insurance mandate that if you didn't have in health insurance, then you would be penalized on your taxes. That was repealed to, uh, that was repealed. So there, federally, there's no penalty. But several states enacted their own individual mandate, California being one of them. What happens when the states enact their own individual mandate is now the state needs you as the employer to report on your employees. So the California individual mandate has two reporting requirements. 
One, the employer must report to the California Franchise Tax Board, or FTB. And the second requirement is that if you are a, an applicable large employer, you must give your California residents a 1095C, which of course you do on a federal level, but the reason I pointed out here is because the deadline is not the same. So applicable large employers, those who employ 50, uh, more than 50 full-time equivalents, must provide California residents with a 1095C by the end of January. Uh, if you're an applicable large employer, you know that the 1095C only goes to your full-time employees for the most part. And the California deadline of January 31st does not coincide with the federal extension to furnish these forms to the employee by March 2nd. This is a really big sticking point, and frankly, it is a little ridiculous um, that the, Calif the state of California did not write in any type of provision that an extension would be would follow the federal extension. And so that leaves employers who, who have California residents, if you're issuing a 1095C, you need to do that by January 31st to your California residents. The federal deadline to furnish these forms is March 2nd, but the California deadline overrides that for your California residents. If you are not an applicable large employer, you do not have to furnish a 1095C because you're not subject to 1095C reporting. The state of California is requiring self-insured plans to report the 1095Cs to the state, to the California Franchise Tax Board, by the end of May. For fully insured plans, the reporting to the state, you can just rely on your carrier to do that. So no action is needing, needed for fully insured plans to report to the state of California. Your carrier will do that on your behalf. If you're self-insured, you will need to work with either the state guidelines or with a vendor to report your 1095Cs if you are self-insured, and that is to the California Franchise Tax Board. And don't forget, because what I'm finding is there's some confusion about reporting requirements. There are two separate reporting requirements. One is to the State of California Franchise Tax Board. The other one is to the California residents when it comes to those 1095Cs. And these reporting requirements are in addition to the federal reporting requirements that you are already used to. Right, so I'm gonna open this up to questions here. I believe I have one. Uh, someone, okay. Uh, I thought the mandate to employees by 2031st to California residents applies to those over 250 employees. No, it does not. It applies to any applicable large employer, which starts at 50 full-time equivalents. What is considered a large employer? Uh, an applicable large employer, or an ALE, is an employer that employs 50 or more full-time equivalents. So if you only have 10 full-time, but you have 100 part-timers, you may very well be an applicable large employer. So 50 or more full-time equivalents. 
would be a large, an applicable large employer under the ACA regulation. Okay, so we will move on to the next topic. We're going to start by going over some of the CAA 2021 sections that relate to employer-provided insurance. The first one, and what I think is the, the more popular one, is the optional FSA COVID-19 related relief. There are temporary special rules. Now, this is interesting because right before this came out, no one knew what was in the CAA, that, that latest stimulus package. We didn't know. They didn't even release the actual bill until about two hours before it was time to vote. So all of the legislators, uh, all of the politicians were like, wait a minute, I don't have time to read this. How am I supposed to vote on it? And we, had, we did not know that there was any type of FSA relief in that bill until essentially two hours before they voted on the bill. Again, a, a little ridiculous, but that's the way it is. And so now we've got these temporary special rules that the employer can't adopt. You don't have to, but you can. So we're looking at the carryover permitted for plan years ending in 2020 to 2021. So you, there's no limit on carryover for these plans. It, it was $550, but you can choose to adopt a provision that allows the employee to carry over all of the dollars so they would not have to lose that money. And that's for the carryover is permitted for plan years that end in 2021 and plan years that end in 2020, uh, 2020 and 2021. Also, a grace period extension for 12 months for plan years that ended in 2020 or are ending in 2021. That's really cool too. Here's one that we, we need some more guidance, but it's they're allowing an employer to permit an employee who ceases participation in the healthcare FSA during 2020 or 2021 to continue to receive reimbursements from the unused benefits through the end of the plan year in which that participant ceased including a grace period if applicable. This one's a little problematic and we'll talk about that in a second, um, but it, it is a an optional relief that you could adopt if you wanted. Also, regarding the dependent care FSA, they extended the dependent child age to under age 14 before it was under age 13. This is not permanent and it's for plan years where the enrollment period ended prior to January 31st of 2020. And then the last one that we're used to, because this relief was available uh, and, and expired at the end of 2020, is permitting prospective, excuse me, I, I spelled prospective wrong, permitting prospective election changes for plan years ending in 2021 without regard to whether a qualifying event has occurred. So this just means that an employee could come to you at any time during the year and say, okay, I want to stop my contributions into either the dependent care or healthcare FSA, and you wouldn't even need to ask if there was a qualifying event because there does not need to be as long as you have adopted that provision. And as the employer, if you want to adopt any of, of the provisions, you would need to go through your FSA TPA, and you would also then need to communicate to your participants which uh, of the temporary special rules that you have adopted. 
One thing that I'm sure you've heard if you've done any research into these special rules is the impact to HSA eligibility. That is very real. If your company offers an HSA or the individual is enrolled in an HSA, uh, say with a spouse, then uh, the, the carryover or grace period could affect whether or not they can contribute to an HSA. If plans have a carryover, generally the employee can cancel the carryover or they can convert to a limited purpose and still contribute to an HSA as long as they're not enrolled in the FSA, of course. But if there's a grace period in play, this does affect HSA eligibility. And I say that so that those employers who have an HSA and an FSA need to be mindful of the impact that your decision would have on HSA eligibility. So here's kind of an example because over the past several weeks I've been asked, well, what how do, how do we know what changes to make as an employer? What should I do? And I always say, if you have a plan that has a carryover already, then you should probably adopt the carryover provisions. If you have a plan with a grace period, then you should probably adopt the extended grace period provision. That just seems logical to me. I can tell you that if you have TASC as your FSA TPA, TASC has put together this nice chart of a summary of plan changes that TASC is all automatically adding to your plan. And if you're a TASC client, you have to opt out of these plan changes. Again, this what you're looking at right now is only for those clients that have a task as their FSA TPA, but it provides a good example. So on the left, you can see if you have an FSA with a carryover, then you might just adopt the, the unlimited carryover provision. If you have a, an FSA with a grace period, then it seems logical that you adopt the grace period provision instead of the carryover. And uh, they give several different examples that you can see. And the, the most important part, of, though, is, is if, if you are a task client, if you have an FSA administered by task, they're going to make these changes automatically to your plan, and you must opt out if you do not want to adopt these provisions. I'm going to stop here and just take a few questions. Okay. Someone asked with regards to the California state reporting, you say, in a, when I say in addition to, it's not like we are needing to do this twice. You do not have to, to furnish a 1095C to an employee twice. No, absolutely not. Once is enough to furnish to your employees. However, you do need to report to the state in addition to the federal government. Although if you have a fully insured plan, then the carrier does it on your behalf. So if you have a fully insured plan, you are really reporting only once. Someone said, what do you mean by fully insured plans can rely on their carrier to report to the state? Does that mean our carrier would report it to the FTB? That is absolutely right. You got it. So when I say report to the state, what I'm saying is the state's uh, franchise tax board, the California State Franchise Tax Board, FTB. Yes, your carrier will send the 1095B information to the state of California, and California has agreed to accept that information from your carrier. There is some confusion around uh, carryover change. If a plan ended in 2020, how do you go back and undo? 
Well, you would need to contact your FSA PTA and they will give you all the details on how to go ahead and do that. I, I do agree going back and, and um, you wouldn't necessarily undo, it would just be that the limit of 550 is now unlimited. So an employee who had more than 550 left at the end of 2020, 2020, you would now be able to let them carry over all of the amounts, not just the maximum of 550. And your TPA, of course, has to be involved because they have to really, they have to know and give you the details on how they are going to administrate that. And when you look at the provisions, because I totally, I know that this is, um, these provisions are, are complex. And, and when you read them, you're like, wait a minute, what year? I don't understand what this is referring to, what year? So when we read it, we have to be careful. So for example, when it comes to the carryover, carryovers permitted for plan years ending in 2020 to the 2020 plan year. The next one is a carryover permitted for plan years ending in 2021. And the carryover then goes into the 2022 plan year, but it's ending in 2021. So you want to pay, pay close attention to when your plan year ends. Does it end in 2021? If so, you can adopt the carryover uh, for that plan ending in 2021. And that carryover, of course, would then go into the 2022 plan year. So if you're asking yourself, well, what plan years are impacted? It's plan years ending in 2021 and plan years ending in 2021, the 2020 and 2021. All right, I have another question. For allowing one-time change for the plan year 2021, can we only allow employees who are affected by the carryover to make the changes? Or would we have to allow all employees who are enrolled for 2021? Or do you have to open it up for all benefit eligible employees? That's a great question you pose. And the answer is you have the freedom to design it and narrow it as much as you want. So you can, you can adopt the flexibility to the full extent by opening it up for everyone, or you can make it more narrow than that. It is completely up to you. So every, every scenario you pose is permissible. But you just need to communicate it to your TPA, administering the FSA, and communicate it to your employees so they understand. Yes, the slides are going to be shared, as I mentioned in the beginning of the presentation. A copy of the slides, as well as the webinar recording and the Q&A, will be sent in the post-webinar email. Generally, that's going to happen by Monday afternoon. Another clarifying question on the California state reporting requirement. If we offer fully insured plans, does that mean that we only have to distribute the 1095C to employees and do not need to report to the state? That is correct. That is exactly right. You still report federally, of course, but if you're fully insured, the action needed is to ensure that your 1095C is furnished to employees by January 31st. So you had that exactly right. Someone asked if a grace period is the same as a runout period. No, it is not. The grace period gives the participants the ability to incur claim during that time period. The runout period only gives the participant the ability to reimburse for claims that were incurred inside of the actual plan year. So those two terms are different. 
The grace period gives you gives it a participant the most flexibility because the grace period gives me as the participant time, extra time to incur a claim, uh, whereas the run out just gives me extra time to reimburse myself. We're allowing the 12-month grace period, okay? Does this end at the end of 2021, or do employees have 12 months in 2022 to use this unused 2021 fund? You see how confusing it can be when we start looking at it like this. It depends on when your plan year starts. Let's assume that you, and I believe you have a calendar year FSA. If that is the case, the grace period is going to last 12 months into 2022. If your plan year ends in the middle of 2021, it's going to be 12 months from the date of when your plan year ends if you have the 12-month grace period extension. So yes, the grace period could very well go into the 2022 plan year. Is there a penalty for missing the January 31st day? Yes, there is a penalty. Uh, they're saying $50 per, and per uh, form that should have been filed. You know, it's a great question you pose. You pose, and right now I'm just going to sort of speculate that the state of California is not going to enforce those penalties. Um, that is a pure speculation. So please do not disregard this deadline and then say, but Michelle, you told me they would not penalize me. Um, that I'm only speculating because uh, of what's going on, that there are extensions going around everywhere. We're living in this COVID world. I cannot imagine the state of California is going to go around and penalize employers who did not send a 1095C to their California residents by the end of January. And additionally, if we think about it, if we think it all the way through, how is the state of California going to know if you sent a 1095C to John or Jane by January 31st of this year? They simply have no way of tracking that. So I would not know how, I couldn't even imagine that the state of California would even know when you, when you sent it, uh, unless, of course, you, someone, an employee called and complained. So those are my two cents for whatever that is worth. And, and again, it is pure speculation on my part. Someone asked me to clarify whether the uh, dependent care age was, is it now under 14 or up to, um, up to 14? So let me go back to that slide. And please know it is not permanent. It is not a permanent, um, a permanent change. It, and also it's not even a required change. Your plan has to adopt that. And there are some issues for when you do adopt that because then you think, well, you have to adopt it, um, and it, it applies retroactively. So now how is the TPA gonna, going to administer this? And you really need to work with the TPA regarding that one. Um, but the dependent child age is to those under age 14, not up to or through, or excuse me, not through age 14, but under 14. For now, it's under age 13. It is not permanent, and it's only for certain plan years. So if you do want to adopt that, please contact your TPA, understand all the details surrounding it. We still have several different questions, and I'm going to stop and answer them all because that's what this conversation is all about, is I want you to have an opportunity to ask what's on your mind so you get what you want 
from, uh, from our discussion. So uh, there's still some confusion on the 1095C to employees for fully insured. The state of California deadline to furnish a 1095C to a California resident is January 31st. The federal deadline to furnish a 1095C to any employee who gets one, which is a full-time employee, is March 2nd. The two dates do not coincide. So that means if you employ California residents, the state of California requires you to furnish the 1095C by the end of January instead of March 2nd, which is what we're all used to via the federal deadline. I'm hoping that clarifies. But if it doesn't, that, that's okay. You can ask this question as many times as you want using different different language and, and I will answer it because I know it, compliance topics are rarely simple, unfortunately. Yes, uh, details on how to find the Apple podcast. Oh yes, you would go to any of your Apple products, your, your iPhone for example, go to your podcast, appli podcast application, go to it, click on search right, uh, and type in Kamayo's Compliance Talk and it comes right up. It's an Apple podcast. So wherever you download your Apple podcast is where you will find all of the past episodes. And you just search Kamayo's Compliance Talk. The carrier reports to the state on behalf of the employer. So we're talking about the California state reporting. If you are, have a fully insured health care plan, the, the carrier will report on your behalf. If you are fully insured, the carrier reports on your behalf. If you're self-insured, the um, you if you're self-insured medical plan, then you have you are responsible as the group health plan to report to the state. All right, we have someone asking to clarify about the dependent care FSA. Uh, it's always been under age 13, not including age 13, but under age 13. Uh, that is my understanding. I, of course, I'm going off of memory here. I'm not looking at the regulations. Um, I'm happy to confirm for you after, after, um, after this discussion, I can confirm for you. But I, I'm fairly, I'm actually very certain that it was always under age 13 and it is now under age 14. Not up, not including the age 13, but under. Do the optional changes we discussed apply to FSA plans only? Yes, they sure do. It's FSA COVID relief. That's the topic we were discussing. And it applies up to both health care FSAs and dependent care FSAs, although some of the provisions are going to be only health care FSA. But for the most part, both FSAs. Again, if the care, someone asks if the carrier is provide, does the carrier provide the 1095B to the state for us? If you're fully insured, the carrier is going to report to the state on your behalf. And the form that they use is a 1095B. So that's what they will use to report to the state on your behalf. And that's if you're a fully insured plan. The deadline to report to the state is May 31st, and so the carrier will do that on your behalf if you're fully insured by May 31st. 
Someone asked if there were any rumbling, rumblings about extending the state or federal tax due date for 2021. There are none that I've heard. Uh, so, yeah, I, unfortunately, I don't really have much to add other than I have not heard anything to that effect. That doesn't mean it's not out there. It just means that I, I personally have not heard it. Yes, dependent care FSAs can also include elderly care for sure. If that's uh, if if you have a uh, an elderly person who is your qualified tax dependent, there there's uh, no doubt. Um, but today we are really just speaking to those provisions that were built into the CAA 2021, and elderly elderly care was not a part of those expanded relief options. All right, so let's move on to another provision, provision that was added to the CAA 2021, which was that latest stimulus package passed at the end of December. The, there's a provision in there called the Surprise Medical Billing Act. California already had its own version of this act, but the Surprise Medical Billing Act in the CAA 2021 ensures there's a federal standard across the nation. Not many changes to those plans that are here in California because we already have something very, uh, very, very similar. And the Surprise Medical Billing Act goes into effect January 1 of 2022, and then more details will be released. Although, as I said, the state of California has already had our own version called AB72. We've had that for several years now, and that's always been in effect. So the federal law won't do much for the California plans because we already had this provision. We already had this law. Talk a little bit about FSCRA. That has expired, but there's a voluntary extension that was built into CAA 2021 and that voluntary extension is to March 31st, and it's optional. And why is it voluntary? The reason it's voluntary, or they're saying this, is because you can still, as the employer, take advantage of tax credits that you're using for FSDRA leave until March 31st. So as you can see, that tax credit can, be, uh, can only be taken for leave through March 31st, and the text of the, the language of the bill does not provide additional emergency paid sick leave or EFMLA. It doesn't provide additional paid time for those that have already used it. But what it does is it just allows anyone, any employee who has not already exhausted it to, to use it through March 31st if you want to adopt that. You do not have to. Although I can tell you FFCRA is most likely coming back. Uh, Biden released a stimulus package and the extension and expansion of FFCRA was in that package. And industry experts have already said that we believe that that is going to be a part of any final package that is passed. Although right now it's just in the developmental stage, you can you can pretty well say it's very likely that FFCRA will come back and it will be expanded when it does come back. So more to come on that, but for now, you can consider it expired, but you can extend it voluntarily until March 31st by using the tax credits. 
There's also transparency provisions written into CAA 2021, and that includes new health plan reporting requirements. They are set to go into effect beginning on uh, 2022. Plans, group health plans will be required to report information that includes the plan year dates, the states in which your plan is offered, the top 50 brand name drugs most frequently dispensed, and much, much more. So it, it, the, the text of the bill says that it's the employer, essentially, as a plan sponsor, that's responsible to ensure that this required reporting is completed. But much of the information that's going to be required has to come from your carrier or your TPAs. So having said that, we expect significant regulatory guidance on this reporting requirement to be released this year. Really not much I can tell you about this transparency provision other than to be aware that it's out there and that we need more guidance in order to give you any type of, of tangible path or, or on how to actually do this. If someone asked for the FFCRA tax credits, is it for pay periods that end on 331, even if the pay date for that pay period is after in April? It's actually dependent on the leave. It's for leave that is granted through 331. It really does not matter what pay period it shows up on or when you pay it out. It, the, what it matters is whether or not the person was on leave on 331 and that you're only paying them out through that date. And of course, that is as of now. I, I can say with a fair bit amount of certainty that this will change. Please clarify on the FFCRA extension. Uh, there's not much to say right now, except for it's expected to be extended under the Biden administration. Biden came out with a new stimulus package proposal and an FFCRA extension and expansion is included in that proposal. So stay tuned for more details on that in the coming months. And someone asked about the flexibility for the changes without a qualifying event to an FSA plan. Does that include dependent care? Yes, it sure does. There's another transparency provision that is included in CAA 2021, and that is MAPIA compliance. And MAPIA is M-H-P-A-E-A. -E we just say MAPIA uh, instead of using all of those letters. <clears throat> There's a new requirement for comparative analysis only for those plans that provide both medical and surgical benefits and mental health or substance abuse benefits that imposes non-quantitative treatment limitations or NQTLs. This is really targeted to self-insured medical plans. If you are fully insured, your carrier will do the analysis. So you do not have to worry about this. This is targeted to self-insured medical plans. If you have a self-insured medical plan, this is a new requirement. It's called a comparative analysis for those plans that provide mental health and substance abuse benefits. And it uh, is due within 40 day, 45 days of the statute. So the date is February 10th. And which employers must comply? Employers with self-insured medical plans. 
that cover mental health and substance abuse disorders and, and impose NQTLs. Something to be aware of if you have a self-insured medical plan. Please be aware of that. All right, so this is Toilet Paper Talk. Here are the relevant topics I've been hearing the last several weeks. And this is where, you know, I take all of my, all of the past couple of weeks and I look at it from a holistic view or a macro standpoint. And I'm, I want you to know what are employers asking me about as, as the VP of compliance here at Bolton and Company? What are they coming to me? What are they talking about? What do they care about, essentially? My hope is that that, uh, that resonates with you as well. So first, the LA County Supplemental Paid Sick Leave Ordinance, which is for employers with 500 or more workers, is expected to be extended. It previously expired at the end of December following FFCRA, but the LA County um, office handling this ordinance has been instructed to write up regulations to extend the supplemental paid sick leave ordinance for those large employers with 500 or more workers. Something on the horizon. There's a commuter, a commuter tax benefits for LA County proposed. It's called AB 2548. That's going to require the LA County Metropolitan Transportation Authority, let's just call them LACMTA, they need to implement a transit benefit policy similar to that of San Francisco. If, you're, if you are familiar with San Francisco's commuter benefit, it's going to apply to employers with 50 or more employees in LA County. And the bill requires the Transportation Authority of LA to implement the policy prior to the beginning of 2022. I do not have any details. It's not required at this moment, but just know if you're an employer with 50 or more employees operating in LA County, you will have further guidance on how to implement a commuter tax benefits program uh, with compliance um, with regards to AB 2548 later on this year. As of now, there are no details that I can give you, but that is on the horizon. And I wanted to go over some CARES Act extensions because I do get a couple questions over the past couple of weeks. I have gotten a few questions saying, oh, well, what expired and, and what do I need to know with regards to the CARES Act? So I wanted to put down some extensions here. One, with regards to COVID testing covered at 100% when it's deemed as medically necessary. So if there are any symptoms or a known exposure. That requirement of covered at 100% expires at the end of the public health emergency. And by the way, they already renewed the public health emergency. So the new end date for the public health emergency is April 21st of 2021. If you've been following the public health emergency announcements, you are probably like me and you suspect that it's even going to be extended further but it does renew and it has to be renewed every 90 days. And they did renew it for the end of January. So right now the expiration date is April 21st. High deductible health plans, so essentially HSA eligible plans, can provide first dollar coverage for telehealth. That expires in, at the beginning of 2022. The CARES Act provision 
that allowed FSAs, HRAs, and HSAs to reimburse over-the-counter medicine and menstrual care products is permanent. There is no deadline for that. It is a permanent provision, which is very welcome for those of us who have one of those plans. COVID-19 or COVID vaccines will be covered as preventive care as soon as the U.S. Preventive Services Tax Force recommends it. And that has to be done within 15 days. That was part of the CARES Act. With regards to an employer paying for the employee student loans, uh, giving them a tax-free repayment up to 52.50, that did expire at the end of December. However, CAA 2021 extended that through 12.31 of 2025. So that has been extended. I have a question. COVID tests not deemed medically necessary but are required for work. Yes. So teachers, for example, is a great example, are not covered 100% by the carriers. Oh, great question. There is a, there is a separate provision or a separate law that was actually enacted by the Department of Managed Healthcare in California that requires the carrier to cover testing for essential workers, including teachers. It's not a part of the CARES Act, which is why you don't see it here, or why we didn't talk about it. It's actually from the Department of Managed Healthcare in California. Um, the carriers are required to cover the test for essential workers if the worker follows very specific guidelines, which is that the worker has to call their health plan or call their doctor and request testing by saying, I'm an essential worker, I need to be tested, where do I go? And that, and in that instance, it is covered at 100%. If you're a school and you're bringing a vendor in to the school or on site, and you're having that vendor test your staff on site, the carrier does not have to cover it in that instance. I can tell you that some carriers are very generous and they are covering it in that instance, but there are other carriers who are not as generous and they follow the letter of the law. So if you bring in a vendor, it's unlikely they're going to cover all the tests at 100%. Someone asked if the FSCRA benefits have been extended or if it's in the works. Yes, we talked about this extensively a couple slides ago. Um, it is You can voluntarily extend it up to March 31st of this year. And that is because the IRS has said they will continue to give tax credits up to March 31st. So voluntarily, you can extend it. And also, we certainly expect the Biden administration to release a stimulus package that will extend and expand FSCRA, but you'll need to stay tuned for that. In non-COVID-related news, we had the EEOC coming out with their proposed wellness rules that might greatly impact whatever wellness program you have in place right now. So I wanted to talk about that. First, these are proposed rules. They're not yet final, but we would expect them to be final. Although we also expect this to be delayed much longer than we thought because of the Biden administration. As soon as he came in, essentially what Biden did was he put a, a freeze on all of the legislation that was pending prior to his, his presidency. So what that means is that these proposed rules um, will be delayed because they are part of that, that freeze that Biden ordered on all of the pending legislation. 
And in fact, Biden may delay the rules to be final for quite a long time, because right now the EEOC is uh, the majority is Republican. And he may want to appoint someone to, to turn that so the majority is, is um, on the other side. So we'll see about that. But for now, you, you should be aware if you're thinking about a wellness program or if you have one, that you may have to scale back your incentives to what the, they are calling a de minimis level. There is an exception for programs that are integrated into the group health plan and health contingent. Those programs are, are fairly uncommon, but they do exist. So there shouldn't be that many exceptions to this. And if we look at whether or not it's integrated into the group health plan and whether it's health contingent, health contingent is going to require an individual to satisfy a standard related to a health factor. So, for example, if you want someone to walk 10,000 steps and then you give them a reward, that's health contingent because they have to be able to walk. They, they have to be able to at least have a, a certain health standard to be able to walk those 10,000 steps. Or if you want your participant to obtain a certain health result, like a, having a BMI under 30, that's a health contingent program. And it also has to be integrated into the group health plan, which means generally it's going to be tied to a premium reduction. And uh, it's going to be offered only to those in the group health plan and offered by a vendor contracted with the group health plan. So if you're currently an employer and you're offering incentives that are greater than a de minimis level, you may have to change that if these rules become final anytime soon. And just to give you an example of de minimis, the EEOC wrote a few specific examples of de minimis, which would be a water bottle or a gift card of modest value. Uh, what they are saying is that what is not de minimis would be a $50 medical premium surcharge. So that's the examples the EEOC gave us, but we expect if these rules become final, and they probably will, but it may take several months to a year, or maybe even years, um, they will give us more examples of what, what is de minimis and what is not de minimis. So more to come on that. And what I want you to take away is that if you have a wellness program or you're considering one, that you want to also be aware of these proposed rules and, and design your program with those rules in mind. I mentioned this one a few minutes ago. Biden came out with a plan called the American Rescue Plan. It would be his version of a stimulus package. It has a more aggressive vaccine rollout plan. It provides additional cash payments to Americans, so $1,400 per person. If you add that to the $600 that's already sent or being sent, you've got that $2,000 that, that uh, the Democrats were pushing prior to CAA being passed. Also, his plan resumes and expands mandatory FFCRA, and it expands FF, FFCRA to larger employers, not just those under 500 so stay tuned for those details. And as the American Rescue Plan, as this bill gets formally introduced into Congress and they start looking at it and voting on it, there will certainly be a lot of buzz around this, a lot of headlines around this. And so now you can consider this just as maybe just as a, as a teaser. There will be a lot more information going on about this and uh, 
just know this is the initial bullet points of his American Rescue Plan. It could very well change by the time it's passed or it could not pass at all. We'll, we'll just have to wait and see. I want to spend a moment talking about vaccines I, because this is obviously very relevant. First, I will say that Nicole Cam is our guest speaker next month. So tune in next month, and we will be going in-depth as it relates to vaccines and the employer. So whether or not you can require a vaccine, can you bring in a vendor on site, she will be talking about those types of topics, and we will really be diving into the vaccines as it relates to an employer requirement. And um, Nicole, as I'm sure you know, she has been a guest speaker in the past. She is an employment, she is an employment attorney at Fisher Phillips, and she's been a fantastic partner of Bolton's throughout this entire process. So we look forward to having her on next week. For now, I'll just leave you with a little bit of information on who is eligible to get the COVID-19 vaccine. Well, first, what happens is the CDC gives recommendations to the states on how or which groups of people should get it first. And then the state officials use those CDC guidelines to decide, and then the states give it over to each county. So having said that, you wanna visit your county's public health site to learn more. I've put just a few on here. So LA County's public health site is on here. Um, right now they're administering to what they call phase 1A and B. So that's everyone 65 and older and you can make an appointment online if you're 65 and older. I saw a few headlines or I guess a few little news stories on, on my social media feeds where a lot of uh, kids were taking their, or adults were taking their older parents to their vaccine appointments. And you can make that online. You can go right there to that website, the LA County Public Health website, and you can scroll down and click on a button that says make an appointment online. They will ask you to prove whether or not you're 65 years and older, so you will have to take some documentation with you, but it is ready to be rolled out. For Orange County, they are also administering uh, the vaccine to those 65 and older, so you can also make an appointment online for that, and uh, there is the website for the Orange County vaccine uh, information and appointment making. And if you don't live in LA County or Orange County or, and you're interested in how your county is administering these vaccines, I just suggest doing essentially what I did. I just typed in Google uh, the name of your county, vaccine, COVID-19 vaccine distribution. It'll probably take you right to, to that page, which is what happened with LA County and Orange County. I hope that's helpful to you. And it, will there be a cost to members for the COVID-19 vaccine? No, not at this time, probably not ever. Right now they're using, the, right now the federal government is subsidizing the vaccine and the cost of the vaccine using their Operation Warp Speed tax dollars. So right now the federal government is paying for it. At some point in the future, it will be the carrier who pays for it, but they will not bill the member. So it will all, it, there's really not going to be any point in the future where you as the member will have to pay to get the vaccine. Will there be a cost to employers uh, to, for the vaccine? Yes. After the Operation Warp Speed money is exhausted, 
then the health plan is going to be incurring those costs. But if you're fully insured, as you know, you, you're not paying those dollars. You just pay a fixed fee to the insurance company and they cover all your claims. If you're self-insured, then yes, you will, your claims dollars will be reflected if someone gets the COVID-19 vaccine. But as the member getting a vaccine, you will not pay anything. We'll talk more about that when Nicole Cam joins us next month. For now, I'm going to leave you with a list of resources, our bulletin blog. Make sure you just you subscribe there if you've not done so yet. If you have benefit-related questions and you're a Bolton client, please contact your Bolton client team or your Bolton broker. Also, if you're a Bolton client, you have access to ThinkHR, log in to ThinkHR and go to their COVID-19 Resource Center and you will find so many different sample forms that I think are super helpful. And they, ha they have these little two-minute videos that you can watch related to, to key issues that employers are facing. They've, they've really got some great stuff there. If you're looking at something that is an employment matter versus just benefits, fisherphillips.com has a wonderful site. It's a great site, public information available with facts, with um, ways to easy, easily search for what you're looking for. They had COVID-19 Resource Center for California which includes the Cal OSHA's Emergency Standard Checklist, Top Nine Things Employers Need to Know, all sorts of articles that could catch your interest on relevant issues that employers are dealing with today. So I hope you'll check one of these out. And uh, in the meantime, other than that, we'll see you next month with Nicole Cam. And she will be on to talk about vaccines and employers and whether or not you can require one and much more. I do have just a few questions before we leave today. Do we have to offer the FSA dependent care extensions to terminated employees? No. All of the FSA COVID relief options are optional. You can adopt one, you can adopt all, you can adopt none. You can also adopt one and then narrow it and design it to, to whatever works for your organization or whatever works for you. So no, you do not have to offer that, that uh, it's what's called a spin down provision. Uh, that's really what you're referring to. And that's the ex uh, extension to terminate an employee. It's really called a spin down provision. So no, you do not have to offer that. You can design it however you'd like. Just communicate with your FSA vendor with regards to that. Uh, someone asked me to expand on CIFRA guidelines, CFRA, regarding employers with multiple sites. Uh, this really falls in the employment law arena. CIFRA does. Unfortunately, I don't have the expertise myself. That is something we could find on ThinkHR. Um, you can actually send if. Think HR an email or give them a call and they will, they'll research that on your behalf. That's it for today. Please remember that I will send a copy of the slides, a, a copy of the recording, as well as a PDF of the questions and the answers given during this webinar. So I'll see you next month with Nicole Cam. Have a great afternoon, everyone.